0: So I get called into my boss's office. We're supposed to have lunch, so I go to pick him up for lunch. And he presses that button that everybody now knows is under the desk at, at CNN and elsewhere where the door magically closes. And he says, we're taking you off your show. And I was like, oh, the conversation that I literally had planned for the night before was happening. And I said, so are we still having lunch or are we not having lunch? And he's like, oh, are you gonna cry? I'm like. Should I cry? <laughs> was so no, no, no. Let's have, let's have lunch. And he was kind of bent on the back foot, if you will.
1: Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Soledad O'Brien. Soledad has been a staple of broadcast news for years, having been a field reporter and then anchor for shows like MSNBC's Morning Blend, NBC News's Weekend Today, and CNN's American Morning. You've probably heard her cover some of the most impactful moments in American history. But throughout her storied career, Soledad has had some significant downs, too. In 2007, Soledad lost her coveted anchor position with American Morning and pivoted instead to something brand new at CNN, documentaries. Then in 2013, Soledad made another unexpected move. She left CNN and started her own production company focusing on original documentary work. It stands out to me that Soledad is incredible at knowing when to pivot and leverage her previous work to find new opportunities my full conversation with Soledad O'Brien right after this quick break. Soledad O'Brien, it is an honor to have you on Imposters. Thank you for being here.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your career in broadcasting, ultimately, you know, your decision to start a production company, as well as some personal experiences that you've had in the last few years. But I want to start by understanding your upbringing and how that influenced your career choices. So can you start with just tell me a little bit about your upbringing?
0: Yeah, I I grew up in uh, Long Island, New York, so a a suburb of the city. I grew up in a very non-diverse community. My mom I was Afro-Cuban. My dad was white. They both passed away a couple of years ago now. And so we were very much kind of in a secluded suburban environment, but diverse, which was not a thing. <laughs> uh, I was I was born in the late 60s, which meant, you know, my childhood was really in the 1970s. And so conversations about diversity really weren't a thing. You just kind of ended up being a bit of an anomaly. And I mentioned all that to say, I think that is a part of what influenced my part of my career. Certainly a lot of the reporting that I do that focuses on race and diversity and and really stories where we try to seek out uh, perspectives from people who often are kind of ignored in the media. I, I think a lot of that was just personal experience growing up. Not that I felt particularly ignored. I had a really nice and happy and extremely boring childhood, which I think every parent wishes for their kid, like nice, boring, boring childhood. But I do think you definitely didn't see a lot of you know different kinds of, of people when I was growing up.
1: And so if I remember correctly, your dad was an engineer, right? And your mom was a teacher.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly.
1: And you're one of six, right?
0: Yeah, I have five uh, brothers and sisters. I'm number five. I have a little brother.
1: All went to Harvard, by the way.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. Wild. They, we did. Wild. But, but it, they would say like, Harvard's not the be-all, end-all of everything. There's lots of other great schools out there.
1: That is for sure. Still very impressive nonetheless. But so when I think about you know what your parents did and also the the opportunity they give you and your siblings, like what got you into broadcasting when that wasn't something that was, you know let's call it, in your uh, family tree?
0: Yeah, not at all. Um, I had really decided to be a doctor when I was pretty young, probably 12 or something. And so I did all the things that I thought would be helpful on a resume. That's a forward-looking
1: 12-year-old. I was going to say, um, very proactive by you.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so I, I took organic chemistry with my sister, who now is a surgeon, so you, you know how the story ends. And, 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 you know, she was a great student, but we we're very different kinds of students. And I remember she'd say to me, you know, I, I'm a good memorizer, um, but I, I didn't necessarily understand all the concepts, but I could regurgitate them on a test very easily. And she said to me, you should be able to deduce these formulas, like if you're a scientist, you should understand the formula, right? And I remember thinking, no, like, I don't know. It's, it just wasn't the way that I thought about it. I, I thought, I, I like people, I think I could be helpful. And I think she was saying, well, to be a scientist, you really need to be excited uh, by the science of it. And so I left school because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, it kind of became clear. I'm not particularly passionate about science and medicine. So I, um, I didn't really know what to do. I started working at a TV station. I was an intern at a show at WBZ TV in Boston a show called Centro, which is a sang- Spanish language show. and then later I moved down into the newsroom, which was very exciting for me. I loved it. And I think it just being in an environment where I was exposed to a lot of different people and that excitement, um, I just thought like, oh, this would be an amazing job. I, I knew that I'd liked I think media. Which is why I did the internship I, and I was trying to figure out okay I got it I've got
1: a career shift. what am I gonna do? Why did you think you liked media?
0: um I just thought I'm a good writer. I'm a good storyteller. Those are things that I was always strong in we, we, you know I mean this sounds so cheesy but it's true. we used to have a family newspaper which was the three younger kids running around interviewing the older kids and our parents. That's awesome. that's a little bit lame. Uh, you know dad that. is mowing the lawn today. <laughs> We might go on vacation this summer. Literally, we had to find stories, yeah. and we are very—we were pretty boring, and Long Island was pretty boring where I live. So yeah, there was not a lot happening. Uh, yeah, so we, we created a newspaper and tried to do like headers, and make it look like our family newspaper. No one read it at all because there was nothing happening. Uh, but I, so I knew I was a good storyteller, and I think um, I think that gave me a lot of confidence in being able to segue into news and feeling. I think I had that feeling of passion that I really didn't have when I was studying medicine.
1: Yeah, you look at you know your trajectory in broadcasting over the next several decades and just incredibly impressive, right? You went from hosting MSNBC's Morning Blend, NBC News Weekend Today, you ended up being a permanent co-anchor on Weekend Today, then ended up at CNN. And what felt like kind of the height of your broadcasting career or around it is when it felt like you were getting into production of documentaries and just production work and even thinking about starting your production company, what was the impetus for that?
0: Well, you know what's so funny? When I was getting into documentary work at CNN, I anchored morning show, then I started doing docs, then I went back to anchor the morning show. Uh, I had, no, one had, no one did docs. CNN doesn't do docs yeah. at that time. So it was kind of crazy. In fact, people would call me and say, so are you all right? I know you're, you're off your morning show. How are you feeling? One of the things that I think is one of my biggest strengths is that I have a great ability to take something and be like, "Eh, "I can work with this." I can take, you know, Plan A doesn't work, move to Plan B doesn't work, move to Plan C, pretty pretty seamlessly. Sometimes with some crying in between, but usually like I can turn on a dime. It's actually a a pretty valuable skill, I think. Hundred percent. And so I I didn't think like fantastic documentaries because documentaries weren't a thing at CNN. Does CNN? was known and probably to this day is known for its live breaking news coverage. And if you're not an anchor, you're not really, you don't really have access to that. But I remember the head of Time Warner, so CNN's parent company called me, Dick Parsons. And he said, I see they have moved you to do docs. I said, yeah. He said, how are you feeling about it? I said, you know, I think it's kind of interesting. I think I can make this work. He's like, good. I think so too. Right? Like, I, you know, and I, I, that's all he wanted to know was, is this a thing that you can turn into an opportunity? So, of course, it would end up being the most important thing when you want to start your own production company and you're going to create content and do docs and series, et cetera, et cetera. But at the time, I literally had to figure out, like, ugh, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I pull this off so it actually ends up being a, a, a good thing and not a, a, a bad, embarrassing thing.
1: What Soledad isn't mentioning here is that part of the reason for her venture into CNN documentaries was because she had already been removed from the morning show that she had been anchoring for years. And being public about that without a plan to pivot into docs would be a huge blow to her professional journey.
0: So we had a meeting. Um, I remember it was a very weird thing because people would say to me, so how you doing? I'm like, I'm doing fine. (laughs) How are you doing? Like, what a weird question. And then you begin to realize, like, something is up. A producer friend of mine said, everyone keeps asking me, like, how's Soledad doing? And he said, something is about to come down the pike. I don't know what it is, but it's weird. Got home that night. I said to my husband, I think something's up. People keep telling me this. I said, so what do you think I should do if I'm, like, fired off my show? He said, well, we, we kind of walked through it. What would you want to do? would it be bad or good? I didn't love the hours. I thought the show was pretty good. So I I said, you know, so we kind of came up with a game plan. So I get called into my boss's office. We're supposed to have lunch. So I go to pick him up for lunch. And he presses that button that everybody now knows is under the desk at, at CNN and elsewhere where the door magically closes. And he says, we're taking you off your show. And I was like, oh, the conversation that I literally had planned for the night before was happening. And I said, So are we still having lunch or are we not having lunch? And he's like, oh, are you going to cry? I'm like, should I cry? (laughs) So no, 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 Let's let's have lunch. And he was kind of then on the back foot, if you will. We went out to lunch and I drew for him what I thought I wanted. I knew, for example, there's a cap on what reporters can make. But if you're an anchor, you actually go above that reporter cap. So you needed to be an anchor, to, you know. So I said, "Well, I want to obviously be an anchor. I'd like to do documentaries. This is what it should be. I think it should be called something like this." And we kind of drafted out. And I think he was so surprised that I wasn't like freaked out and crying that I kind of, in that moment, got everything I wanted by saying I wanted to be an anchor position. I just negotiated a salary, you know, uh, to a certain degree. Obviously, you know, agents had to come in. But I had, like, I had my wits about me, I guess I would say. I wasn't distracted by like, oh my God, is this happening to me? It's like, okay, we walked through this. And so I think it's a really valuable exercise sometimes to think about, you know, okay, what if this thing happens that might not be the greatest thing? How do you respond? How do you think about it? What would you wanna do? Uh, how do you make sure you don't say yes to things that you shouldn't be saying yes to or no to things that you shouldn't be saying no to? So it really ended up working out really well. And again, it would go on to become the thing that allowed me because I did, I left CNN with fifty hours of documentary, and when I left, you know, we were trying to negotiate out, and so they just kept adding stuff. And they're like, "You could take your whole library of everything you've done." So I, I left with my entire library of every doc I did at CNN.
1: I want to talk in a second about in twenty thirteen when you left and you started the production company. But before we talk about that, let's let's focus on just your broadcasting career. Talk about when you think of your biggest challenges that you faced as a broadcaster, kind of rising the ranks through your the arc of your career, just what are experiences that come to mind?
0: I think The only way to get ahead in broadcast is to have opportunities. And so the biggest challenges come when people won't give you opportunities. Um, for many years, I tried to get a show named after me, right? Anderson Cooper 360. Um, I, I just never, ever could get anybody to say that. And, and CNN was a place where everybody had a show named after them. Like literally never could do it. I could just not get them to agree to name a show for me. Um, and again, it, it, it's helpful to your brand, right, to have a show named your name in the show. It's really worth it. So I don't exactly know what the rationale was for that. Um, but I think that obstacles were around opportunity and around having people decide like, yes, you're going to be the face of this, you're important to us. And I don't think I ever really got to the point that, that I was bad at CNN. I always did their morning show. I often had to talk people into letting me go do coverage. And then we usually would do very well and win a bunch of awards. But you know, it was always a bit of a, a fight. I remember having to talk them into sending me to Haiti. And I'm like, you probably want some black people on the team that goes to Haiti. I'm just saying like at race probably makes sense. These- yeah. How these events are covered and the things that come up, it's actually going to matter, especially if you know anything about the history of Haiti. But always, I I felt like always um, pushing people to say like, oh yeah, let's send Soledad. But I think that's for everybody, actually. A lot of the obstacles are around talking people into sending you on a big story because you can't have opportunity if you're not on the big story. By the way, I anchor Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien now.
1: There you go. When Soledad speaks about the peaks and valleys of her broadcasting career, it truly showcases her ability to adapt. The fact that she came up with a plan when she had a hunch that she was about to lose her coveted morning show position, I think is an awesome takeaway. If you feel like there's a difficult conversation coming your way, or maybe even if you don't, but want to always be prepared, do a dry rehearsal. Practice what you would say if your boss came to you with bad news and come up with a plan. We're gonna take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear about the tough learning curve Soledad faced when starting her own production company and how her ability to adapt came in key when faced with the sudden loss of both her parents. Stay with us. And we're back. Before the break, Soledad talked about some of the rockier moments in her career. After losing her morning show anchor position and transitioning to documentaries at CNN, Soledad negotiated leaving CNN with a portfolio of movies that she leveraged to create her own production company. Let's go back to the production company. You started the production company in 2013. You had experienced with docs before, but again, starting a production company that creates docs as well as other series and branded content is a totally different beast. What were the early days like of starting your production company?
0: I think it was just very stressful at the very beginning. And it was stressful because there was so much I didn't know and, and you, so much you just didn't know that you needed to know. Like you didn't even know that you needed to know this thing. It reminds me a lot of when you join a new company as, your, as a young person right? And you're walking around, you're like, crap, where is the cafeteria? I just can't remember. I know it's down one of these halls, but no one's, they showed me once and now I'm trying to figure it out. It was a little bit like that. When I started the company, all my stuff was on our dining room table. And my husband, whose desk I'm sitting at right now, would say, so this is, this is not going to stay here, right? Like (laughs) you're going to, you're going to get an office. So we started looking for an office in Manhattan. And luckily, I mean, we always had pretty good funding and we also... I was immediately, I immediately had gigs because CNN was my very first client. And so I had all these docs I needed to deliver and I had no office space. And so you walk into an empty New York City space and they're like, so how many square feet do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what I, I, I don't know, I don't know. Four desks. Uh, uh, <laughs> right, and you're looking at like raw space, right? In New York City. So you, I, you, I, I mean, it's a stuff like that where you, you think I am just totally unqualified to pick out space. I don't, have how, how much how many people does this space even hold? I've never, you know, so, I mean, you know this because you're an entrepreneur and that was for that and for everything. How many desks do you want? How many computers do you need? What's your system going to be? What kind of phones are you going to have? How are you thinking about the hierarchy? Are you going to have an operations person? Are you going to have a CFO? How do you think about how you're going to do your accounting and all the stuff that I'm like, I am just trying to churn out some docs, which by the way, I had signed the contract, not realizing that I should have delayed it like six months, right? Said we'll begin, but we're actually gonna begin work on the docs in six months.
1: Yeah, like, bought yourself a little bit of time to get shit, like, in line. Had
0: I thought about that, that's what I would've done, but it never occurred to me. If someone had said, you know, I now give people the advice, don't start right away. Like, give yourself six months to get into your space. We're shooting docs, and I'm also uh, trying to, like, figure out what office space to have, and I'm working on my dining room table. I mean, it was just, oh, I have four little kids. Well, I
1: guess the question I was even wondering in my head is, like, did you feel like you spend the amount of time with your family that you wanted to spend. And the reason I even ask that is something I've thought a lot about is, you know, Morning Brew we've been working on for the last seven years. And sometimes I think to myself, would I start another business today as a 28-year-old who has a fiance, assuming I would grind for the next seven years on it? And it's a really hard question for me to answer now knowing. Yes,
0: you should do it. Here, I'll answer for you, (laughs) of course. First of all, let me just tell you something. I have four kids under four. Like. They're exhausting. Your business will be fun and engaging. And you, you as a parent, you're gonna be super tired, but you'll be a great parent because you're gonna show your kids that you can juggle stuff. And you'll be in the office some days, holding a kid in an arm, doing a conference call, and just making it work. And I think there's a real value to that. I think there's too much like agita around, yeah. you know, can I do, it? of course you can. People have been doing it forever. Totally. Absolutely you can. And you just make sure that you're aligned with your partner right like to me that is the most important thing do they want to see you succeed so when you say actually i'm going to be here for another five hours they're like i get it you're building a thing i got you and i remember my husband i'd say i I need to go to thailand for a shoot he's like absolutely oh and when he'd say i have to go to seoul because we are doing a pitch i'd be like absolutely you know and that meant craziness and making it work Uh, but i think like that was far more important than you know, did I clear the decks to prepare for for child rearing?
1: Were there ever times with the business where you're like, "Oh, what what the fuck is happening right now?"
0: Constantly. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: What what comes to mind when you think of like the biggest blow ups?
0: Uh, a great story. I had a really wonderful assistant. Love, great, great guy. But we were paying our quarterly taxes, which, by the way, before I ran a company, I didn't know that was a thing. And um, and one day I looked at what we had paid in quarterly taxes, and it was. $48.30 or something like that. I'm like, wow, that seems like a really low number to pay in ta- Like The IRS, I don't think I've... I said, can I see that bill? He had left many zeros off of it. And so now we were obviously had not paid our taxes. Oh, we had paid $48 to our <laughs> <Yeah>. taxes, <laughs> which was basically nothing. And so that was just I mean, obviously we had a big giant fine because we didn't pay our taxes. Um And you know what I loved about that guy though? He came to me right away and said, I think I made a mistake and showed me the check. And I was like, oh my God. A lot of people wouldn't do that. A hundred percent. And I was, I always told him just how grateful I was. And I, it's the advice I give a lot of young people. Like just tell people, I think I have fucked this up. Can I just show you what I've done? And people will get mad and they will completely respect you. So, so it was just a great, I mean, I use it all the time as an example of that was a great employee, even around a really bad mistake. So, you yeah, know, that was probably our first one. <laughs> I was like, uh oh, huh, probably, I should probably be on top of that then. I think that the hardest thing was just people being dismissive because I had been an anchor and I, I didn't really know what it meant to be a CEO. Like, What does that mean exactly? Is it my vision? Am I, does that mean everybody's doing what I want them to do all the time? Obviously not. And so sometimes people, I mean, I had a guy who I, I had hired to help us with the production and he's like, I don't even know why you're in this piece. Jeez. I was like, <laughs> and you know what's so funny? I was kind of like... I don't know. And my producer was like, "She's in this piece because the client wants her in this piece and she's paying you money to put her in this piece. So put her in this piece or you're fired." Yeah. But at the time even I couldn't cuz you know, I was trying to figure it out myself. So yeah, we made a ton of mistakes at the beginning that I think the goal is not not to make mistakes, the goal is to not repeat mistakes.
1: I love that statement. The goal for all of us isn't to be afraid of making a mistake, but to be agile and insightful enough to know why that mistake happened and to not repeat it. But pretty early into the process of building her company, Soledad was thrown another curveball when the health of both of her parents took a turn for the worse. One last topic I want to talk about, which is the relationship that you had with your parents. I want to talk about you know, what it was like for you to care for your parents and then also the experience of losing them from my understanding with 40 days apart or less than 40 days apart.
0: Yeah, so crazy. Yeah,
1: just talk about the experience.
0: My parents were awesome, they really were, were great. I always feel so badly when people will tell me that they didn't have great parents because my parents were amazing. Oh, they were strict, sometimes a pain. I was definitely the first person to leave every single party forever, but they were really, really wonderful. And um, they passed away in 2019, right before the pandemic, actually. Uh, and they did. My, my dad died first. And then 40 days later, my mom died, which didn't surprise me. They'd been married probably for 60-something years. And they um, were very, very close. They really relied on each other. Uh, it's a topic that we actually, uh, on our, our radio show, we do this show called Everyday Wealth. And Edelman financial experts are really kind of the, the experts that we talk to, the, the wealth planners kind of weigh in for us about finance. And we had this very conversation because we were talking about how prepared or in my case, not prepared you can be when you have elderly parents. And it was, you know, my parents were great at coming to this country as immigrants, getting jobs, being successful, buying a house at the time when. Black people, you know, and white people living together couldn't buy houses in lots of neighborhoods. They figured it out. Uh, They retired successfully. They got into really kind of the whole arc of their lives. They got six kids off to college. You know, they really figured it out. But you would think when I would say, so, you know, like end of life planning, you got it? They'd be like, we got it. And they didn't have it. I mean, it's so crazy. And and it's actually made me very aggressive. about telling people, like, you actually have to really, really plan for this. You have to when your parents are 70. I wish that I had sat down with my parents when they were 70, and they were vibrant, healthy 70-year-olds, and said, so can we talk about, like, what the plan is going to be when you're 80 and 85? Can you put me on your account just so I can see what you're spending money on, you know, and can we have conversations about where you want to live? Because the apartment you're in right now, if you're going to have a, a nurse's aid, Where where is that person going to sleep? Like, what's the plan? So even though they would say, you know, yeah, we have it covered, they clearly didn't have it covered. So we may, you know, I I have five brothers and sisters, and I think we could have done a much, much better job of of really making my parents and even all of us walk through the plan. And I get it. People don't want to walk through the plan. One, I think they're anxious about money. And two, they're anxious about conversations that involve debt. But you know what? You end up having them anyway. Yeah. It's much. It's it is an awful thing to be negotiating with a parent, as as I did, who had dementia, and trying to get her into new housing facility because she now needs someone to live with her. I mean, it was awful. She would cry. She was, you know, she didn't exactly understand what was going on, and she was so confused. It was awful. There was so much about the end stage of life that's really challenging. I think you can make it significantly less awful when you. Uh, have conversations in advance about how to do it the right way. It was just a very, the last couple of years of their life was constantly sort of getting information that you just, you know, that was a little bit surprising and sometimes surprising in the bad way. So I I think it's something people can avoid actually. Again, I wish we just had that conversation earlier.
1: Well, it sounds like, you know, they were just starting to lose the things that made them them as they got into the last five years of life. Like just talk about what that was like for you. And also something that I've thought a lot about is you know, the grieving process and after they passed, how you gave yourself the, the space to grieve while also, again, you run a company, like you have all this other shit going on. How are you able to balance those things?
0: The hardest thing, and I, I've actually had this conversation with my husband, is that my dad never wanted to leave my mom. Never want, which meant because she was wheelchair bound and she never could move around, that meant he was always home even when he was in good shape and could get around. Like I could take him to a a, a Broadway show. We could go to listen to, he loved jazz, go, you know, he always say, yeah, but your mom, your mom doesn't want me to go. So I I literally told my husband, like, if that's ever me, go, I want you to go and live your life because it really made his life kind of his world very small because my mom was always very anxious about like, where's he going? Where's he going? Where's he? And I, I don't even think she really fully realized what she was doing. I mean, she had dementia. So I do think she was anxious and afraid. And and so she just needed a caregiver there. And my dad was there all the time. So that was a piece of it. And, you know, the grieving process for me, grief is weird. You know, for the longest time, I'd be fine. And then I would just think of something and, and start to cry. I remember my dad was a client of Chase Bank. And, and every day, in order when he had his errands to run, he'd walk into the Chase Bank and they would bring him coffee and Mr. O'Brien sit down and he would do, just have chats with people. I mean, he became that guy, right? That eighty. Five-year-old guy who popped by the bank, had a cup of coffee, checked on his accounts.
1: <laughs> I love every that.
0: day. Uh, was, at, but you know, I got a chance to chat with all the people at the bank, and I was just like, I can't articulate how much you meant. Like he got out, and he, they were so, so kind to him, and so yeah, they
1: gave him life.
0: They absolutely did. So there were many, really, really good things about the end of their lives. People were very kind to them, and uh, and I think people are really. I, I love New York City for that. So, yeah.
1: One last question is, you know, when I reflect on just the person that I've become in my life, I think about either lessons that my parents taught me based on things that they said, or more likely behaviors that I watched throughout my life that, through osmosis, have turned into the behaviors I use as a person and professional. And so, when you think about your mom, and your dad, independently or as a couple, what are the greatest lesson, single lesson that you learned from each of them that kind of shows up in who you are today as a professional?
0: When I was about probably seven or eight, I remember I was learning how to ride a bike and my neighbor, Helena, was teaching me. And And at one point my dad, and I was finally able to get it after like tilting over and falling Mm -hmm. over. And we had a, we had a rocky driveway. I don't know who puts a little kid on a driveway like that to learn how to ride a bike, but it was the seventies. What can I say? And, uh, and I remember at some point my dad said, I knew you would get it. You're always the person who just keeps at it until you get it. I remember when I would start anything, a new job, anchoring an entrepreneurial venture. And just like those words always rang in my head. You know what? You're always the person who just keeps working at it till you get it. And it was almost, you really realize how important it is for people, whether it's your parents or other people to speak things into you, you know? And he might've been like, oh no, I was literally only talking about bike riding. But but it was, it's just something I've held onto for such a long time. Like, this is what my dad saw in me. This is what I can do. This is who I am. My mom was much more practical in how to um, navigate challenging things. And she used to have a lot of advice. She used to always say, she called me, "Lovey, lovey, lovey, uh, lovey." You know, don't take advice from people. Most people are, are <laughs> idiots. They don't. They don't nothing to tell you. Uh, oh, she had great advice around. You know, if something bad happens, it's like take the day, take 24 hours and cry. Just give yourself permission to just have 24 terrible hours. But then hour 25, sit down and write your list. What's next? Next steps who you want revenge upon. (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) my mom. But like, she just like, wallow in pity for the first day. But then after that, get it together and start on your next path. And I do that so frequently. I am absolutely a crier. And then I'm like, okay, well, I think this is good because, (laughs) and actually, maybe this is great. And you know what we should do? And actually, so that was a really worthwhile and, and good lesson in, feeling it and then moving past it.
1: Soledad O'Brien, thank you so much for joining Imposters.
0: Thank you for having
1: me. It's no wonder that Soledad has had the long and amazing broadcasting career that she has. In listening to her story, it's clear to me that her positive attitude and relentless ability to get back up after being knocked down has gifted her the ability to pivot away from any bad situation that she faces. If there's anything to be taken from Soldad's career trajectory, it's that resilience and adaptability are invaluable assets. No matter what challenge you're facing in your career, whether you're getting laid off, facing a difficult conversation with your boss, or are struggling to attain your dream job, if you take a beat to reassess, even do a dry rehearsal with a friend, you're going to figure it out with your head held high. Now, imposters, listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked, where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We wanna make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex@morningbrew.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Valbanini, and Michaela Heck is our producer. And special thanks to our multimedia intern, Olivia Mead, for her help with this episode. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Reg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.